As you know, some have called you a czar. Ну что? So what? You know, people call me different names. <laughs> does the name fit? <laughs> no, it does not fit me. Hours later, this surprise announcement. It is obvious that we, as the government of the Russian Federation, should provide the president of our country with the opportunity to make all the necessary decisions for this. Therefore, the current government of the Russian Federation resigns. To Russia because protests are taking place across the country in support of the jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. As we've discussed many times, he's 22 days into a hunger strike and his doctors now fear that he's close to death. Hello and welcome to What in the World? International Relations Explained. This episode has come out a little later than I planned due to some personal reasons and also the topic today is actually one that's pretty ongoing and pretty current. So I wanted to leave it a little bit just to see if there's any new developments and uh, what's going on really. But before we get into today's episode, as always for new listeners, I just want to say thank you for tuning into this podcast and I'll just briefly explain what it's about and uh, what goes on. So what in the world aims to bridge the gap between academic explanations of international events, which are often long and complicated and boring and at times inaccessible? And then we get the media explanations, which are the opposite, often being really quite quick and missing the most crucial of details to the topic. So I hope to explain international relations topics in a 20 to 30 minute podcast episode and provide key facts. So hopefully you'll feel a little bit more informed about our world and what's going on in our world today. I'm Sam, your host. Uh, I have uh, I have two top degrees in international relations and international security. So I have a, a deep passion and a deep interest uh, in all things politics. Uh, before we begin, though, as well, I just want to say a huge thank you as well to my regular listeners. It means a lot that you continue to support me and continue to tune in every episode. Um, so a huge thank you to you, too. But let's wait no further. Today's topic is a highly topical one and one of huge importance. I'm going to give an overview of the political makeup of Russia, such as, is it a democracy, as some people still claim that it is? What powers does Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, hold and have? And finally, what is going on with Alexei Navalny, a strong critique and an opponent to Putin's rule? And this part has really made the news um, quite a lot in the coming uh, in the past weeks. And so I'll explain why. So let's get straight to today's podcast episode. Russia. Russia has a rich and long history. It's gone through many, many transformations. We have the Russian Empire, which was under the Tsarist rule for a couple of hundred years, which transformed into a short-lived republic after the Russian Revolution. But this was eventually overthrown by the communists who declared the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic that will become the largest and of course the state that we often always think about when we refer to the Soviet Union just due to its sheer size. Then of course with the rapid collapse of the Soviet Union towards the end of the Cold War uh, we get its current incarnation the Russian Federation. So from here we can see that Russia has had quite a tumultuous history and in many ways this history of empire and of communist domination reflects onto the way Russia looks back at itself 
and also acts on the world stage in its foreign policy and its diplomacy. But we are past empire and authoritarian leaders and poor human rights, right? Well, this is something that needs further explanation and exploring, because what we see in Russia should, on paper, not be happening. So what is Russia? What does the Russian Federation even mean? So if we look at Russia, Russia is an asymmetric federation and a semi-presidential republic. So I'll explain and break down this all um, for you. An asymmetric federation is a type of federation. And if you don't know what that is, it's a state system. So picture the United States, for example, or even Germany for a European example. They have states such as Florida and Arizona in the United States. And for example, in Germany, you have Bavaria and Saxony and many others, of course. Um, but what I mean by states is I just don't mean like regions. So Bavaria, of course, is a region, but it's also a state in the federal system. Because in a federal system, states have powers. And this, of course, ranges from case-by-case -case basis. But, for example, states can control their educational policy, their health policy. And in some systems, laws can also differ um, from the central government. And the central government cannot influence or change these um, policy uh, directions without some pretty clear oversight and some constitutional changes. Um, it can't do it in a simple manner. The central government, however, uh, retains control over foreign policy, defence and other issues. So, for example, Bavaria wouldn't be able to declare war on Austria or have their own standing army. This power lies with central government. So in a federal system, power is shared out and the states get different powers to the central government and the central government represents the country on the world stage and defence and other issues. So now I've explained what a federal system is in, in very loose terms, um, and if you're interested in federations and federal systems, I do urge you to go and maybe look at it in more detail. But nevertheless, it's important for the understanding that I just explain it briefly. But what does it mean when Russia is an asymmetric federation? So the makeup of Russia gets really quite complicated. So Russia has 85 subdivisions, all known as subjects of the federation. So they are grouped into 46 oblasts, which are known as provinces, 22 republics, 9 kreas, which are known as territories, 4 autonomous okrugs, which are districts, 3 cities of federal importance, and 1 autonomous oblast. It is the republics, however, that enjoy the constitutional recognition as a state in Russia. But all of these different subdivisions also enjoy different powers, um, and even a, they, they've really quite vary among the subdivisions. And an asymmetric means that some states within Russia have more power over the others. So some states may be able to independently control their educational policy, while others may not. And that's controlled by the central government. I won't go into a long list of what each state is allowed to do in Russia and what that means and etc., but it's basically like a hierarchy of states. Some are more privileged than others. And this kind of makes sense in the case of Russia. So if we look at a map, we know Russia is a huge territory. It's 17.3 million kilometers squared, to be precise. 
and it covers 11 out of the 24 time zones. So when the east of Russia is in the middle of the working day, the western regions are still fast asleep. So it's a logistical nightmare. But it's not just the pure logistics that makes it an asymmetric federation, but actually it's because of its diverse population structure. So the states slash republics are usually based on some type of ethnic makeup. The Russian Federation includes more than 100 ethnic groups, and ethnic Russians make up just 81% of the total population. So of course they're the majority, but, but they're still quite a significant part of the population that's not ethnic Russian. Um, so 22 of the republics um, are designed as specific territories allocated to various non-Russian ethnic peoples. Each has its own constitution, a legislature, an official language, and is represented by the federal government in international affairs. But otherwise, it has a great deal of autonomy. And the level of autonomy differs depending on the threat the autonomy poses to the power of the central government. Many republics have their own independence movements. Some are stronger than others. And so the central Russian government may need to have greater control over such things to prevent it from bubbling over and threatening the makeup of the country. Or vice versa, greater autonomy may actually appease many um, cessation movements and cause them not really to be a threat. So it's a balancing act, and this is a reason as to why Russia is an asymmetric federation. Okay, so we've covered the federation part. Next, I'm going to tell you what it means by a semi-presidential republic. And this is a bit easier to explain. And basically, it means that the president exists alongside a prime minister. So the president is the head of state and the prime minister is the head of government. And in the case of Russia, Putin is the president and currently the prime minister is Mikhail Mushtin. However, Russia does differ from some other semi-presidential systems such as France or Poland. Because whilst in those countries, the president appoints the prime minister, so he chooses them. In countries like France and Poland, only a parliament can remove the prime minister. He is answerable to parliament, not the president, whereas this differs in Russia. In Russia, the prime minister is appointed by the president, is answerable to the president, and can be dismissed only by the president, alongside the, the government cabinet. So this is really where we start to see the creeping authoritarian powers come in, because this example of a semi-presidential system is very rarely used and the countries that it is used in aren't some of the bastions of democracy such as Nambia, Mozambique, Syria. They're not really the bastions of democracy nor are they the bastions that western powers look to um, to get inspiration from. So the Russian constitution sets out what we would see as a western style of democracy. We have a legislative which is bicameral, meaning there are separated, it's separated into two divisions. So we have a 450-member state Duma and a 170-member Federation Council. So if we liken this to the US, this is like the House of Representatives, um, and then we have the Senate. Um, so these deal with the laws, economic policy, and it has the power, and I say power in inverted commas, because in Russia, where the power actually is, is pretty clear. But constitutionally, they have the power to declare war and impeach the president. Then we get the executive, which is the president, 
which we all know is Putin, and he is the commander-in-chief, therefore responsible for the armed forces. And he has the constitutional power to veto uh, any proposed laws, and uh, like I said previously, he has the power to appoint and dismiss the Prime Minister and his cabinet. And finally, um, we have the judiciary, which is the courts, such as the Constitutional Court, the Supreme Court, the State Courts, and so forth. Many of the judges are appointed by the Federation Council, who receive recommendations, and I also say recommendations in a loose sense, um, from the President, um, because these aren't recommendations, these are demands. Uh, the Supreme and Constitutional Courts also have the power to overturn laws that are deemed unconstitutional. So we have the components of a Western style of democracy. We have separation of power, we have a legislative, we have an executive, we have a judiciary that should all checks and did all do checks and balances on each other. Um, and Russia's a democracy, right? Because Putin himself is elected by a popular vote. So people could vote him out the next time if they were displeased with his rule and his direction, right? Well, let's actually look into it because it's really not as simple as that. Many people, through no fault of their own really, fall into the trap of still calling Russia a democratic country. Because they see the fact that, well, Russia has elections and, well, Putin's elected by the people. And they see this as the only variable that makes a country a democracy. So let's talk about, although why Putin may seemingly be elected, Russia is far from a democratic country. And we don't have to look far to see the clear facts as to why Russia is no longer a democratic uh, country. So Freedom House, which is a reputable organisation that conducts research and advocacy on democracy, political freedom and human rights, tracks countries' level of freedom and the things that I just mentioned. And we just have to go to the page on Russia. Then it is clear to see the level of political freedom in Russia is close to non-existent. And overall the rating is non-free. And I'm going to go... Uh, I, I urge you to look at this yourself and look at it in detail because I'm just going to give an overview of the key facts and why, although there may seemingly be a vote, it doesn't really count for anything and, and doesn't make Russia a democracy at all. So a crucial part of democracy is, of course, voting for people to represent you. And those who are campaigning should follow strict electoral laws, meaning that they don't have any superior advantage over other candidates. And there's a free and fair media who can give equal weight to the candidates. Um, and there's also other characteristics, of course. This is not the case in Russia. The president um, is not elected through free and fair elections. There is no independent media which is able to critique or give equal opportunity to other political parties in Russia. In fact, the media, which is tightly controlled by the Kremlin, gives preferential treatment to President Putin, which removes the element of fairness from an election. What is also crucial about the fact is that Russia uh, does not allow opposition parties so there are opposition parties, but these have to be sanctioned by the Kremlin. Um, and opposition parties have no ability to mount an effective chance of achieving their agenda or increasing their powers. And this isn't just a, oh, well, they're obviously not liked enough to get enough votes and blah, blah, blah. 
It's the fact that opposition leaders are regularly arrested or imprisoned during campaign periods, on trumped-up charges, and this inhibits their ability to actually campaign. And opposition parties are also regularly targeted by state security services who harass and in some cases shut down campaigning. Opposition figures are sometimes prevented from registering uh, for an election in the first place. And like I said, political parties have to be approved by the state to even be able to run in elections. So there were three main Kremlin-approved opposition parties um, in Parliament. And I say opposition because they don't really oppose anything Putin does. So there's the Communists, there's the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, and they are far from being liberal or democratic. And there is a Just Russia Party. And none of these parties reflect values that we in Europe uh, would expect to exist, such as human rights, democracy and respect for others. So they're not really opposition parties, but just kind of a, uh, a myriad to kind of give this appearance of Russia being a democracy. Oh, we have, look, we have opposition parties. It's not just a, to a totalitarian state with one party. Um, but really, it's not very good. And with the vote itself, there are even reports of ballot stuffing, voter intimidation, and there's irregularities of voter numbers at polling stations. And often, international observers who go around the world observing votes and elections just to ensure they're fair and free are either prevented from entering the country or intimidated at observing stations. If people claim that Russia is, has free and fair elections, they're just plain wrong. What is also significant is the power that Vladimir Putin has accrued over his years of being president. The constitutional power that he now has makes him an authoritarian demagogue in Russia. Nothing in the legal sense can outseat him. There's been constitutional amendments that were adopted in 2020 that allows Putin, but not future presidents, to run for an additional two terms as president, which potentially extends his rule to 2036. It also makes it constitutionally illegal for him to be imprisoned for any crimes, thus giving him lifelong immunity. The constitution was also changed to basically give increased presidential oversight of the legislative branch. There are now two new categories of senator that will join the Federation Council, and that is former presidents, and up to 30 senators will be appointed by the president for outstanding service to state or society, of which up to seven may be senators for life. The Federation Council will be consulted by the President on ministerial and other key appointments in fields such as defence, security, as well as home and foreign affairs. The constitutional change signifies that Russia is an authoritarian regime, with an all-powerful President, a weakened legislative that basically has presidential appointed senators, of whom one will be Putin when he leaves office, and it's just an effectively a tool of the presidency. The change also allows Putin to mull over what he's going to do next. He, it allows him to run for president for a third consecutive term, which will be his fifth term. Um, and in a way, it also increases the power of the presidency as long as he's president. Um, and in some ways, it weakens the power of the presidency when he's not president, so when he would be sitting in the federation chamber. There is no opposition parties to counter this, 
And there is no better example than what is going on when we think of opposition in Russia than with the arrest of Alexei Navalny. Now, who is this man? He's been frequently uh, in news outlets and Western media for quite some time uh, during the recent months. He was poisoned with a, a poisoned with a Russian-made nerve agent, which is Novichok, that was also used in the UK in Salisbury. He was sent to Germany for treatment, and on arrival back in Russia, was sent to a penal colony, where he's now critically ill um, due to being on hunger strike. But who is he? Well, Alexei, Alexei Navalny is an opposition leader. He's a lawyer and somewhat of a social media star on YouTube and Twitter. He is a staunch critic of, that, of Vladimir Putin accusing him and his party, United Russia, uh, of being full of crooks and thieves and having Russia in some kind of feudal system. His time as a critic starts around 2008 when he started publishing on his blog claims of corruption at a government, and, at government level and in state-owned companies, highlighting that corruption that had been widespread during the Soviet Union was still alive and well. And this attracted a following amongst Russians' urban demographic and also the young. And it wasn't really till the fact that Putin decided to become president for the third time that Navalny became quite popular. And what do I mean by the third time? Well, under the Russian constitution at the time, the president couldn't be president for more than two consecutive terms. He could be president for... for three terms for example but just not consecutively um, so after his second term Putin decided to become the prime minister and Medvedev became president but the fact that he became president for a third time and basically became prime minister just to keep up appearances broke many of the unwritten rules of Russia that corruption should not be seen and should not be out in the open and for many Medvedev just became a puppet and it really did look like that Putin was still controlling the strings even as Prime Minister. So Navalny attacked this. He attacked the open corruption, the, issue, uh, the issues in Russian politics. He even at one point ran for mayor of Moscow and whilst he lost to a Putin ally he got 27% of the vote. Quite a significant um, margin for a person um, where the voting is rigged in favour of Putin and his allies. And it's from this point that we really start to see the threat to his life emerge. Why? Well, because he could efficiently create an opposition to Putin's cronyism. And whilst he wasn't successful, he was a direct threat to the rule of Putin. He was able to mobilise big cities, create protests, and openly critique Putin's rule. He was also exceptionally good at creating networks of opposition candidates, not just in the big cities, but all over Russia. And this is a threat to Putin, one that just could not stand. He was attacked with chemicals. He suffered the loss of vision in his right eye about 80%. He suffered chemical burns on a separate occasion. And he then announced he was going to run for presidency. Whilst he didn't have a realistic chance of winning, well, because the, the vote is rigged from the start, he was then barred on running on some trumped-up embezzlement claims. But yet, his fate would still be worse, and it is really yet to come. Because we get to 2020, and on a flight to Siberia, Navalny became seriously ill, and the plane was forced to make an emergency landing near Kazakhstan, 
He was rushed to hospital where he fell into a coma. The doctors claimed, well, yeah, he has low blood sugar, but his family were concerned that the doctors were just Kremlin lackeys. Um, he was allowed, after much denial by the government and by the doctors, to fly to Germany to seek treatment, where it was successful, and it was found that he was poisoned by Novichok. Quite a serious thing to happen, and not the first time that uh, Putin critiques or Putin um, opposition or people to his rule have been mysteriously harmed. Sometimes even he's lucky not to die because this seems to be quite a common occurrence uh, for Putin critics. Um, although treatment was successful and there was still an immediate danger to his life, uh, he decided to return to Russia and was immediately arrested and sentenced to prison where he is currently critically ill and on hunger strike. So the Navani saga has not ended and is actually really at its peak at the moment. It's attracting international recognition. Putin is scared of the Navani effect. Putin's not hugely popular in Russia at the moment. Covid has totally exposed an economy that is not diverse and is really suffering just from stagnation and declining productivity. And when people in Russia don't have money or the economy isn't working as it's supposed to be, they're not happy. They can put up with corruption. They can put up with many things as long as they have money in their pocket and the quality of life is continuing to grow. And this is many of the reasons why they allowed Putin to continue from throughout his rule because he was guaranteeing them income. But this doesn't seem to be the case at the moment. And the fact that Navalny has been poisoned and arrested seems to have harmed him even more. Because it makes him look desperate. It makes him look scared and that tarnishes his strongman image. There's currently protests going on in the major Russian cities against the imprisonment of Navalny. And protests are always a threat to Putin. And Putin doesn't like protests because if we get to see protests in Belarus or in Georgia or in Ukraine... The Russian army is always on standby. There's always a crackdown that is helped by the Russian government. There is a risk as well that Navalny will die through this hunger strike or by some more sinister means. And if he does die, this has the potential to weaken the opposition cause and because it removes a strong leader in Navalny. So Putin could still win the long game. But it could also do the total opposite. It could turn Navalny into some type of martyr Something that is even more powerful and something that Putin really does fear. So this is something that really needs to be considered when we look at the mindset of Putin. It's not Navalny as a person that he's scared of. It's the effect Navalny has in, in inspiring people and in getting protests to go and getting people to oppose Putin's rule that really needs to be focused on. I personally do want to add though that the obsession with Navalny as a person is not helpful to the true idea that Russia needs to be a democracy and a liberal democracy. Navalny is not a liberal at all. He is a Russian nationalist. He likened Muslims to cockroaches. He wants to restrict immigration from Muslim-majority countries, but encourage it from white countries. He won't return Crimea to Ukraine. He supported the war in Georgia. He is right-wing. Uh, I did see somewhere that someone likened him to being... Uh, like uh, Marine Le Pen in France, but further right than her. And in my personal opinion, that is not good at all. Um, 
so he could dress to turn into another Putin if, in the slim chance, he was to um, win the presidency. What I also want to add as well, he is not the opposition leader. There is no united opposition in Russia. But many news outlets treat him as kind of like the spokesperson as the to Putin opposition, which is not helpful because there really are truly some people in who want a liberal democratic Russia and a tolerant society that Navalny doesn't want. But what I think needs to be reminded is that when we talk about Navalny, treat him as a symbol of Putin's leadership. Treat him as a man who is exposing the fact that Putin will silence opposition and any people who critique him through any means possible. And Putin has a tight iron grip on the political sphere in Russia. Alexei Navalny, in my opinion, doesn't deserve the presidency, but he deserves freedom. He should be allowed to live his life. He, along with many others, should be able to seek election in free and fair elections. One free from intimidation. There should be access to independent media and there should be strong electoral rules keeping it fair for all. This is a dream, but hopefully one that will come true. Russia is definitely not a democracy at the moment. But never say never. Thank you for listening to my podcast on democracy in Russia and the situation of Alexei Navalny. This is something I'll continue to follow and we will see what happens with him. I hope he survives, but I am no personal fan um, of him or his politics. But to me, he represents the authoritarian leadership of Putin in the sense of he is being silenced by a man who is a dictator, a demagogue and all authoritarian next podcast um, which will be next week to make up for the delay this time we're going to look at some environmental issues due to it being earth day only a few days ago i will discuss what is often missed in the climate change discussion the threat of climate conflicts countries that due to scarce resources which are being uh, heightened by climate change uh, risk coming into conflict with their neighbors over these resources And there are some interesting case studies for this um, that I think you will enjoy. So do tune in next week. But also do go and listen to my previous episodes if you haven't yet. And thank you so much for listening and tuning in to this episode. Thank you and goodbye.